We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold let's talk finance wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot yahoo finance does just that it consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis making it easier to manage your investments Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome, everybody, to another live Sunday night edition of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. You know, it's starting to become a bit of a tradition doing these podcasts on Sunday night, although I'm probably going to have to break with tradition uh, pretty soon due to my summer travel schedule. You know, summer starts a little early here in Puerto Rico. The kids finish school uh, around the 19th, I think, of May. And so then we'll be doing some traveling for a few months. And so I'm really sure when the podcasts are going to come out, but I, I will continue to do them even as I am traveling on vacation. You know, one of the things about these live podcasts is if I forget to say something, I can't stick it back in. I kind of got used to doing that for a while. I would finish my podcast. I would record it. And then pretty much as soon as I finished, I'd realize I left something out, you know, because I don't really have a script or anything. I have kind of an idea of what I want to talk about. Then the podcast kind of takes a life of its own as I'm recording it. Uh, and then when I'm finished, I might remember, oh, God, I forgot to put something in there. I was able to go back and, and put it in. Well, when it's live, I mean, that's it. I mean, you get what you get, and I and I can't uh, insert anything. So I want to start off today's podcast by, by mentioning one point that I thought it was significant, so I, I wanted to bring it out, but I forgot to say it on the podcast I did on Thursday. But anyway, on Thursday's podcast, I was talking about the leading economic indicators, which have been a disaster. We got uh, the last or most recent one, which was way worse than estimates. I think triple what had been forecast, minus 1.2% or, or minus 
Uh, and it was the 12th consecutive month where these leading economic indicators were down. I mean, so what does that tell you? Because these are forward-looking numbers. It, it says the economy is not looking good, right? I mean, you had to go back, I guess, to the Great Recession of 2008 to find a string of negative uh, uh, leading indicators as long as this one, right? So it's, it doesn't have a, a good precedent. Well, the numbers would have been even worse had it not been for one of the lone positives, and that is the stock market. The stock market has been going up over these past 12 months. And the stock market is a leading economic indicator because it is forward-looking. And so when they put the stock market into this series of leading economic indicators, it was because it was believed that a rising stock market signified uh, good things to come in the economy, that investors were looking forward to a stronger economy that would deliver stronger corporate earnings. And so when the market was going up, that was a forward-looking indicator of economic strength. Conversely, if the stock market was going down, that was a negative indicator because it meant that investors were worried about the future. They were worried about falling profits, and so they were selling stocks. And so the movement in the stock market was seen as an indicator of future economic growth, which is why it is a leading indicator. Except that's not how it works anymore. It's actually the opposite. The stock market goes up when the economic data is bad. Bad news is good news for the stock market. Now, why does it work that way now? Well, because when investors think the economy is bad, they get bullish on stocks because that means the Fed is going to be easier. Maybe they're going to start cutting rates sooner. Maybe they're going to go back to quantitative easing. So when the stock market goes up, that's actually a bad sign. Investors think the economy is weak. Conversely, when the stock market is going down, it's because of good news. When investors think the economy is going to be strong, they want to sell stocks because they think that means the Fed is going to have to hike rates more or leave rates higher for longer. That's what's going on. So one of the lone bright spots in the economy is actually a negative, but it's not being counted as a negative in the LEI. So they really should change the LEI so that a weak stock market is a positive side for the economy and a strong stock market is a negative side because all the economic strength that we've seen or all the stock market strength that we've seen has been precisely because the economy is weak and because investors expect it to get even weaker. And so that means that as bad as these leading economic indicators have been, they'd actually be worse if we were accurately counting the stock market as being a negative indicator as opposed to a positive indicator. And now uh, for a new topic, but on this topic of the stock market, I have been talking about on this podcast for a while how a lot of the money losing companies that were born during the era of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing would die uh, as interest rates normalized. And we got another example of that late this week. I think it came out Friday, maybe after the close, uh, but the stock was down 11%. Maybe it would have been down more. I'm talking about BuzzFeed. This is a internet uh, news organization, the kind of parent company which created it, 
uh, owns the Huffington Post. So it's a very left-leaning um, news organization. And they actually went public through a SPAC back in 2021, almost two years ago exactly to the day. This thing went public through this SPAC at $10 a share. And I remember on the podcast, I talked about it. I don't remember which episode, but I spoke about it and I I made fun of it because I said, look, this was a ridiculous IPO. Uh, The company's never made any money and it probably never will. Yet they went public anyway. And even when it went public through this SPAC, it never even traded at 10 bucks. The high, I think, I look back on the charts, was $9.97. BZFD is the symbol of this stock. And it closed at 67 cents on Friday. So it was already down better than 90% from its debut with the SPAC. It was down 11% on Friday. So clearly this is not a shocker that the company is going out of business. The market obviously anticipated that. But you basically have a company going from the equivalent of an IPO to a bankruptcy in two years. What a disgrace. I remember talking about the fact that money losing companies should not be going public. You know, 2021 set a record for the number of money losing companies that went public. But back in the day, whenever that day was, Wall Street wouldn't dream of bringing a company public that didn't make any money. I mean, I think that started during the dot-com bubble. That's probably the first time where this you know, concept happened, where people would buy money-losing companies and gamble on the IPO. Because an IPO normally would happen, and again, back in the good old days before the Fed turned the stock market into a casino, but a company would go public long after it proved it, the viability of its business model. Let's say I had a business and I was making good money, right? Because the businesses that don't make any money, right, they fail. Those aren't the businesses that are supposed to go public. The public's not supposed to invest in a business that hasn't even proven itself. So let's say I've got a business and it's doing well. I'm making money. I've been making money for years. And now I want to take this proven, successful business model, and I want to expand it, right? I want to grow my business that is already making money. I just want to scale it up. Now, how do I get the money to take a profitable business to the next level? Well, one way is to go public. I am going to let mom and pop investors in. They're going to get a piece of my action. They're going to give me some of their money, and I'm going to invest that money to grow my business, right? I'm not trying to cash out. No, no, no. I I just want to raise money to expand. And I'm not really selling any of my own stock. I'm going to be the biggest stock shareholder in this public company. And of course, since I'm the biggest shareholder in this public company, I mean, I'm going to really make sure that I do a good job. I've got all this skin in the game. I'm just, you know, tapping into the equity markets and I'm going to scale it up because it already works on a small scale. I just need some money uh, to take it to the next level. Like that's a legitimate IPO. But based on the Fed turning the market into a casino and Wall Street happily playing along, the whole IPO market changed. And that by the time a company goes IPO, the, the, the original investors are cashing out. 
right? The, 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 these venture capitalists, these guys that, 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 that did the seed money, they're the ones that get in early, and then they use the SPAC or the IPO to, to cash out and to, and to sucker in the public with the help of Wall Street into buying these worthless companies. And that's what happened with BuzzFeed. I mean, some of the founders took a lot of chips off the table, and then they're playing not with the house's money, with the public's money. They cash out, right? That's their exit strategy. And you have the public being conned into buying into a pig and a poke. You're buying a business that's never made any money. And you have no idea if it's ever going to make any money. But nobody cared because money was free. Rates were zero. Investors would buy anything, including uh, BuzzFeed. And here we are two years later, and every penny that the investors put into BuzzFeed has been lost. The company is at zero. It's laying off its workforce. I think some of the people are going to get, you know, reassigned to, um, you know, Huffington Post or, you know, they won't all be out of a job, but a lot of people will be out of a job. And this is just uh, one domino. There's a bunch more that are going to fall. Again, I said 2021 set a record for money losing uh, IPOs. And I said back in 2021 how quickly a lot of these stocks would go from I IPO to bankruptcy, and it's already happening. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. All right, so I'm talking about the idea that a money-losing company should not be going public. Now, you're going to find, I guess, exceptions to that. I mean, Amazon was a very successful IPO that was born out of the dot-com bubble, and it was losing money. Uh, when it went public, but that is, you know, the exception. It is, it is not the rule. And sure, you know, every once in a while, one of these stocks is going to work out, but it really is gambling. And IPOs were not supposed to be gambles. It was supposed to be an opportunity to help a profitable business expand. Because if a business isn't profitable, why would you want to expand it? What's the point? And, you know, if you can't make money on a small scale, then why scale it up so you can lose even more money on a bigger scale? You know, it reminds me of that old joke. We lose money on every sale, but that's okay. We make it up on volume. Right? If you can't make money on a small scale, then you're going to lose even more money on a big scale, right? But Wall Street didn't care. The public didn't care. Everybody was drunk on cheap money. Well, now 
the hangover is setting in as the cheap money isn't as cheap anymore and the bankruptcies are starting. There's a lot more to come. And, you know, another thing, too, a lot of these companies are going to be raising their prices because a lot of companies were just going for sales, right? They were going for volume. They didn't really care about making money because nobody really cared about their earnings, right? It was all about, you know, some other metrics and there was cheap money everywhere. So everybody just wanted to grow the top line and no one really cared about earnings. And so there wasn't a lot of pressure to raise prices because if you raise prices, that might hurt your top line, right? Because as prices go up, some of your customers stop buying and that's not what they wanted. They wanted to keep growing the top line Bottom line, be damned because nobody cared. Well, now people care, right? So it's a new world now uh, where profits count. And, and so companies are going to have to raise prices. And that, again, is going to be reflected in the CPI. At least some of it will uh, because the consumer's gotten a break because he's been subsidized by the investors. They were willing to lose money because they thought the stock was going to go up. Well, when the stocks aren't going up anymore, and now they have to survive where they can't tap Wall Street for extra money. They actually have to earn the money, uh, which is you know, the, the hallmark of a valuable business where it generates a profit because that means it's doing good. It is combining the factors of production, land, labor, and capital in a way that generates a profit because it's giving the public something that it desires and values more than the cost of producing it. If a business can't generate a profit, then it means it's destroying value and, and, and it shouldn't be around. And the last thing it should do is expand, right? Which is why these companies shouldn't be going public. Either they prove they can make a profit or they have to shut down and free up those resources to be used more effectively um, someplace else. But the point I'm making now is that a lot of companies now have to generate a profit. So they got to raise prices, even if that means they lose some sales. So they'll have a smaller business. They'll have to reduce its scale, maybe lay off some workers, but they have to find some kind of sweet spot where they can actually make a profit because, you know, the free ride is over. They need to generate profits from their customers. They can't get them from investors who don't give a damn about losses. And an example of this happened last week with Netflix. Now, Netflix isn't a company that loses money. They make money but they don't make enough money to justify their stock price. So what they announced uh, last week is that they are going to now start cracking down on people who share their Netflix accounts, their passwords, right? Because anybody has a Netflix account, just gives a buddy their password, and then they could just watch Netflix at their house and, and not have to pay for it, right? Well, Netflix now is going to do a better job of making sure that that doesn't happen. And so a lot of people who have been getting Netflix for free are either going to have to start paying for Netflix or they're not going to have Netflix, right? And this, though, is a price increase that won't even show up in the CPI because stuff like that doesn't get included. If you were getting something for nothing and now you have to pay for it, that's an infinite price hike, right? From zero to anything is infinity, but it doesn't, it doesn't show up. But that is a significant increase in somebody's cost of living when they got something for free. And now, I don't know what it is, nine, 15 bucks a month. I forget what, what, what Netflix costs. But, you know, that adds up, you know, 12 months a year. And it's not just Netflix that's going to get more expensive. 
everything is going to get more expensive. And the companies that can't raise their prices, like, like BuzzFeed, I don't even know what, what, what it sold, but it couldn't do anything, couldn't generate a profit. And the company mentioned the reason they're, they're you know, turning out the lights is because it couldn't make a profit. You know, and well, that didn't stop it from going public. It couldn't make a profit back then either. In fact, it's never made a profit in the history of its existence. And of course, now it's out of existence. But you got to make a profit or you're going out of business. And so a lot more companies are going to be raising prices to stay in business. And a lot more companies that can't raise prices are going to go out of business. That is the economic reality. But I want to talk for the rest of today's podcast about the, the debt ceiling. And actually more about the debt than the ceiling. But I guess it's coming down to the wire because there's been a lot of coverage over the weekend and last week of the debt ceiling showdown that is going on now in Washington between some of the Republicans in Congress who want to put strings on the raising of the debt ceiling to the Biden administration and the Democrats who just want a clean bill to raise the debt ceiling, no strings attached. And the problem is that everybody wants to raise the ceiling. It's not like the Republicans are saying we're not going to raise the debt ceiling. I mean, that's what I would do if, if I was. In fact, when I ran for Senate in 2010, that was my um, you know, rallying point. That was my stump speech. The reason I wanted to go to Washington, D.C. in 2010 was to stop the debt ceiling from being raised. Right? I didn't want to come up with some gimmick to allow the ceiling to be raised, I wanted it to stop. I wanted to create a permanent ceiling that could never be raised. Because again, and I, I've mentioned this before, right? the Democratic talking point, the line that they repeat over and over again, is we must raise the debt ceiling because we pay our bills. No, it is the opposite. The government wants to raise the debt ceiling because we never pay our bills. If you pay your bills, you don't have any debt. Where does the debt come from? It's unpaid bills. We have 31.7 trillion in debt. That's 31.7 trillion of bills that we have not paid. We didn't pay them, we borrowed the money. And we wanna keep on borrowing the money. Nobody wants to pay any of these bills. I wanted to start paying the bills because I know that the sooner we have to pay them, right, the sooner we'll stop running them up. Because the reason we keep increasing spending is because we never have to pay the bills. We can keep putting all the spending on a credit card. And as long as they raise the debt ceiling, we can continue to not pay our bills. Now, does that mean we cannot pay our bills indefinitely? No, because eventually we're gonna have a currency crisis. Eventually it's not about America not wanting to borrow, it's about the rest of the world not wanting to lend because they know we're not going to pay them back. And one of the reasons they know that is because we've already told them. We are telling them that repeatedly in this debt ceiling battle.
In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. All right, we are talking about the debt ceiling and the debt. And contrary to the way the media is spinning this, the debt ceiling isn't the problem. The debt ceiling is actually the solution to the problem. The problem is the debt. The problem is that Congress, the president, keep running up more and more debt, and every time we get to the ceiling, we either raise it or suspend it. That is the problem. The problem is that we keep raising the ceiling. Not that we won't raise it. In fact, the threat is that we raise it again. Everybody is saying the threat is that we don't raise the debt ceiling. And what is everybody saying? Every Democratic congressman is out there on these TV shows saying that if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we're going to default on our debt and interest rates are going to skyrocket for everybody. It's going to be a huge disaster. So we have to raise the debt ceiling because otherwise we're going to default on the debt. Now, I've said this many times before. That is the dumbest thing that you could possibly say when you are running a Ponzi scheme, which is effectively what we are doing. And we are admitting that every time we tell our creditors that if we can't borrow more money, you're out of luck, you're not getting paid. You know, interest on the national debt right now is almost 600 billion, right? It's about double where it was. It's going a lot higher, but right now it's about $600 billion. The government collects, and I've got this, I'm on this national debt clock. The, the, the government collects in tax revenue, $4.6 trillion. That's the tax revenue. The interest on the national debt is about $600 billion. So we got plenty of revenue to pay the interest on the national debt if we want to prioritize paying interest on the national debt. But clearly, we don't want to do that. Not only are we not prioritizing it, we're telling our bondholders that they're the low man on the totem pole, right? We don't talk about anything else that's going to not get paid, right? Nobody is saying, well, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we're going to have to cut back on congressional salaries, right? Or we're going to have to, you know, fire some of our staffers. Uh, they don't say, well, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we might have to cut Social Security or we're going to have to cut the defense. No, the only thing they talk about cutting is paying interest on the national debt. That tells you where you are as a creditor, the U.S. government is only going to pay you if it can find some other sucker to loan them the money. But the minute they run out of greater fools, the party is over. Right? So this is why I've joked for years and years. It was part of my stand-up. If you haven't watched, you know, my stand-up, you know, it's, it, 
go on YouTube, Peter Schiff Stand Up. I've got it on my channel. But that's why, from the very beginning, I always said that they should have made Bernie Madoff the Secretary of the Treasury, right? He would have been a great Secretary of the Treasury because he ran this massive Ponzi scheme. And, you know, that's exactly what the U.S. government is doing, except he did a pretty good job. He got away with it for a long time because he knows it's Ponzi 101. When you are running a Ponzi scheme, you don't tell anybody it's a Ponzi scheme, right? That, that is the key to a Ponzi scheme. It's not letting anybody know it's Ponzi. They have to actually think that they're going to get paid. But we're so dumb. We're running the world's biggest Ponzi scheme, and we're telling everybody that it's a Ponzi scheme. Well, you know what? I think the world is now starting to wake up. That is why you're getting this move to get out of the dollar. That's why you're seeing this move to get out of U.S. Treasuries, because everybody knows it's only a question of time. It's not a question of if. It's just a question of when. We will default on our debt. All the bad stuff that they're saying is going to happen if we don't raise the debt ceiling is guaranteed to happen because we do raise the debt ceiling. And again, default could take two forms. It could take the form of an honest default where we just don't pay or a dishonest default where we pay with inflation. We just print money and give everybody worthless money or near worthless money. Those are the only two choices. And everybody knows that. But I want to really put this whole problem in perspective. But before I do, too, I want to, again, give the history lesson. I, I, I've talked about this before, but I have a lot of new listeners uh, now. And, and, and hopefully I'm going to be getting some more, you know, over the weekend on, on, on Saturday, early in the morning, I recorded my first interview with Jordan Peterson. And I'm not really sure when this is going to air, probably later this week, I would imagine, because we taped it. And it was a pretty long interview, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half. And then I did another half hour uh, for a special that they got at the Daily Wire. So hopefully some people watch that, hear about me for the first time, and, and they start watching my podcast. But I have a lot of uh, people who have probably started watching, you know, since I pointed this out. But a lot of people don't even know where the, uh, the debt ceiling came from. It's not like it was part of the Constitution and we've always had a debt ceiling. No, the debt ceiling was first enacted in 1917, right? That was um, uh, the year the United States entered the First World War. And it wasn't a coincidence uh, that that happened because when we got into the war, the government needed to borrow a lot of money. They started borrowing a lot of money to pay for the war. And so Congress got a little worried about all the borrowing, and so they put a ceiling. They passed this debt ceiling. So look, this, this is the most you can, you can borrow. And the ceiling actually applied to specific maturities. So it wasn't like a blanket ceiling. There was a limit on one-year treasuries. There was a limit on 10-year, right? Depended on the maturity, they were very specific about how much you could borrow. And then also what happened in, in 2000, and, in 1917 rather, was they amended the Federal Reserve Act which had been passed in 1913. And in the original Federal Reserve Act, the Federal Reserve was not even allowed to own U.S. Treasuries. I mean, forget about buying them. They couldn't even own them. They couldn't even be part of their balance sheet. Now, that's the opposite of today. I mean, that's their whole balance sheet. But when the Federal Reserve was first conceived and Congress agreed to pass the Federal Reserve Act, it was with the stipulation that the Federal Reserve that they were creating would never own U.S. Treasuries. Because if they had proposed the Federal Reserve from the beginning and said, hey, it's going to buy U.S. Treasuries, they never would have passed the act. 
The only way they can get it through was to put it through where they couldn't buy treasuries. But that is an example of the camel's nose under the tent. You never want to let the nose under the tent because before you know it, you got this big stinking camel in the tent. And that's what happened uh, with the Federal Reserve. That same thing happened with the income tax, right? That started as a soak to rich tax on the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, and the Carnegies. And right? now all of a sudden, you know, middle class Americans are paying a tax that was for the billionaires, right? But so the Federal Reserve, they got this thing passed by saying, it's not going to buy any U.S. government bonds. No, don't worry about that. It's not going to be an engine for debt and inflation. It, it, it's not going to help the government finance its deficits. It's going to be an independent central bank. Well, the minute World War I rolls around, all of a sudden, the government needs money. Now, of course, we never should have got into World War I, and that's a whole new podcast. And in fact, had we not gotten into World War I, we probably wouldn't have had a World War II. So, you know, but and I don't have time to really go down that rabbit hole. But we go into World War I. And Congress needs money. And they got this Federal Reserve that, you know, they just started a few years ago. And it's like, aha, great. We'll borrow from the Federal Reserve. Oh, we can't. Oh, we got to amend the Federal Reserve Act so we can borrow from the Fed so the Fed can buy treasuries. And now, because it's a war, right, congressmen were willing to vote for something that a few years earlier in peacetime they never would have voted for. See, that's what happens. When there's a war, the government uses that crisis to usurp power because they, they appeal to patriotism and to people's desire for safety. You know, that's why we really lost World War I, as far as I'm concerned. We lose every war because in every war, we lose economic freedom. You know, talking about the income tax, the withholding tax didn't start until World War II. In 1942, they passed the victory tax. And in the victory tax, there was a 5% extra income tax, right, extra tax to win the war. Now, at least back then when we had a war, the government acknowledged that we had to pay for it. And they raised taxes on everybody to pay for the war. You know, recently when we have a war on terror or the Iraq war or whatever we do, nobody's taxes goes up, right? Nobody has to pay for it, right? That's why nobody really objects to these wars because nobody has to pay for it, right? In fact, we have a war and the president's tell you to keep spending. You know, we had World War II Roosevelt said, stop spending. You got to buy these war bonds. You got to pay higher taxes. Everybody's got to stay home and hunker down. Stop spending, right? We got to fight. We have a war to pay for. Wars cost money, right? Now everybody thinks wars are free because we just print the money. So in 1942, we passed this victory tax and the money is withheld right from your pay. It had never been done before. Before 1942, nobody paid any income tax until April 14th, right? The year You, you, you wouldn't pay... Any of your 20, um, let's say if we still did it that way, you wouldn't pay a dime in 2022 taxes until April of 2023. That's when you would figure out how much you made the previous year and you would send the government a check. Nobody had taxes withheld from their pay until 1942 with the Victory Tax Act. Then in 1943, they passed another tax hike for uh, the war effort, but this time they said that all taxes, all income taxes, not just the victory tax, but all of your income taxes, 100% are going to be withheld from your pay by your employer. And if you're self-employed, that's when quarterly estimated taxes began. So before 1943, nobody filed estimated tax returns. Nobody paid quarterly. But starting in 1943, everybody started doing that. Now, why? Because we were at war. The government couldn't wait to the following year 
for your money. They need the money right now. They needed to support the troops. So there was an urgent need for your tax money. And so the government was able to take it right out of your pay or have you pay it every quarter as opposed to one time in the following year. Now, here's the problem with these wartime powers. World War II ended. I mean, it was in all the papers if you, if you didn't hear about it, but it ended in 1945. Well, they never ended the withholding tax. We had the victory, but the victory tax is still here in a sense that we still have the withholding that nobody had until World War II. So now the government has all this money coming in in peacetime. What did it do with it? It found ways to spend it. That was the problem. And you know, today taxes are so high. If they didn't have tax withholding, there's no way the average American would be able to pay his tax. Can you imagine today if Americans got their entire paycheck like they did in 1920, 1930, 1940, they got all their money, nothing withheld. And then they just had to write a big check to the US government the following April, April 15th. How many Americans, the way we spend, would actually have any money? Nobody. <laughs> so the only way they can get away with collecting a tax that's so high is because of withholding. And the only reason we have withholding is because we had World War II. You know, so if you think we need tax withholding, then you got to think we needed World War II. Because without World War II, we wouldn't have had it. But anyway, I've been digressing a couple of times, but I want to get back to the point that I've actually started to try to make about uh, the debt ceiling. So they amended the Federal Reserve Act in 1917 so that the Federal Reserve could own treasuries, right? It doesn't buy them direct from the treasury. It, it buys them in the open market, which is almost the same thing, except some Wall Street banks get to make you know some money because they get a, a commission on all the treasuries that go from the US Treasury to Wall Street, and then they get flipped to the Federal Reserve, right? So it's a cozy little relationship. It's it's nice business if you can get it. You know, I've never been able to get that those orders myself. You know, being in the brokerage business because I'm not I'm not in that club, but that enabled uh, the government to run up all these debts. But also part of the reason I think that Congress wanted the debt uh, ceiling limit. Not only was it a war, but a lot of them realized that the Fed was going to be buying these bonds. And they were worried that that relationship where the Fed can now buy treasuries would encourage the treasury to go deeper into debt, knowing that if the Fed was going to be able to buy the bonds. And, and so um, we had a debt ceiling. And the first debt ceiling, I think, was like $5 billion. You know, that, that was all it was. And they quickly raised it. I, I, wrote, I wrote these numbers down. They raised the debt ceiling again in the second. So it was the Liberty Bond Act where they initially it had the debt ceiling in 1917. And then like the same year, later that year, they had the second Liberty Bond Act, which increased the debt ceiling within the same year. And then in 1939, right, this is on the eve of uh, World War II which we didn't officially enter until 1941, but it, it began 1939. It was kind of obvious that we were heading in that direction. That's when they changed the debt ceiling. And they kind of, instead of having limits on individual maturities, it was just one overall limit on the debt, which is what we have today. But that's been going on 
since 1939. But now, because we've raised the debt ceiling every time we've neared it or we've suspended it, which was something that started more recently, you know, that we, they didn't even have the guts to raise it, so they suspended it, right? Because people, you know, sometimes at the polls, you know, your opponent might use your, your vote to raise the debt ceiling against you. And so nobody even wanted to raise it, so they just suspended it, so they couldn't be accused of raising it. But because we did this so many times, we have $32 trillion of debt, and it's going to keep on growing. I don't care about these Republicans who claim that they, they don't want to raise the debt ceiling. I mean, it's all politics. They had a chance. I criticized them. The Republicans voted three times under Trump to raise the debt ceiling, even when they had both houses of Congress. They had an opportunity not to raise the debt ceiling, but they didn't. They raised it. What did they do when they had the House and the Senate? They increased government spending, and that is what's driving the debt, is the spending. The Republicans increased welfare spending, and they increased warfare spending, and they raised the debt to pay for it. So who are they kidding? They don't want to do anything about the debt. When push comes to shove, the debt ceiling is going to get raised. And even what the Republicans are proposing is nothing compared to what's actually needed. I mean, they're talking about limiting the rate of increase of spending to maybe 1% a year. That's not going to do it when you're in as big a fiscal hole as we're in. You know, for year after year, decade after decade, Congress was promising to do something about the deficit in the future, but they never did anything about the deficit in the present because that's all that counts, right? Because they would pass some kind of law that says, oh, we're going to cut spending in four years. Well, no, who cares? Four years, it's, there's two more elections. And a future Congress is not bound by something that a prior Congress did. Just because a Congress votes for something, another Congress can, can vote to do the opposite. So Congress says in four years, we're going to cut this program. Well, four years later, the people who are in office say, oh, we're not going to cut the program. And they eliminate whatever was, was put in place. That's what happens. And of course, usually too, in Washington, a cut is not a cut in the conventional sense of the word, right? Most people would think of a cut as a reduction. Like if we're going to cut spending on something, that means we're going to spend less. But that's not how Washington defines a cut. Here's how they define a cut. Let's say there's a program and they intended to increase spending by 10%. And then they decide to only increase spending by 8%. According to Washington, that's a cut. We've cut spending by 2%. Even though they're increasing spending by 8%, they're still talking about and claiming credit for a cut. They never cut. And when they claim credit for a cut, generally it's a cut that is going to happen in the future. It doesn't take any guts to vote for spending cuts that aren't actually implemented until years into the future when you may not even be at office. The only cuts that count are the ones you make in the current year. And that never happens. In fact, a lot of these spending cuts in the current year, the spending actually goes up. They say, well, we're going to spend more this year, but we're going to make up for it by spending less in some later years. And we never get uh, the later years. Like I remember going back, you know, when, when uh, Reagan was president, it was going to be $3 in spending cuts for every $1 in tax hikes. Well, we got the tax hikes. We never got the spending cuts because they were supposed to come in the future and those future cuts never materialize. But again, to put the scale of this problem into perspective, 
the U.S. government, right now, they um, generate about, let's see, six, six, six point four billion or something a trillion. That's what they spend. Right? The official spending is about six trillion, but you got to add all this off-budget stuff, off-balance sheet. It's it's much higher. It's more like six point four trillion, six point five trillion in spending. They only collect about four point six trillion in taxes. And that's that's still a lot of money to collect in taxes, but not compared to what they spend. So we have a deficit of over two trillion dollars. And what that means is that if the US government actually wanted to be responsible or was forced to be responsible, they would have to cut over two trillion dollars in spending right now, this year, and every year into the future, right? They can't even reduce the rate of increase in spending, let alone an actual cut, right? All this talk about, oh, we're going we're gonna to cut the deficit over the next 10 years. And again, the reason they talk about cuts over the next 10 years is because all the cuts happen in the out years, which they never have to do. But to really solve the problem, you've got to cut a third of the U.S. government right now. You'd have to eliminate one third of government spending in order for revenues to match receipts. And that's now. That's with interest rates still relatively low. I think that if interest rates stay where they are, even if they don't go up, if they stay where they are for the at by the end of next year, right? I think that in order to balance the budget, you'd have to cut 50% of government spending. Half. You'd have to cut government in half. Every program would have to be cut in half in order to balance the budget. And if you didn't cut every program in half, then you'd have to eliminate some programs completely, right, if you weren't going to cut others by that much. And also, look at the numbers. This also puts it in perspective. If you look at the government expenditures, I wrote them down here. So if you add Social Security, Medicare, and interest on the national debt, this is today, right now, those three um, spending items, four if you count Medicare and Medicaid as two, but just that, well, so th those two, Social Security and interest on the debt, that is 75% of tax revenue, of the government's revenue, is all consumed in, in those things. If you throw in national defense, you're up to 92% of all the tax collection on those things. You'd have to run the entire government, everything else they do, on the other 8% if you balance the budget, if you weren't relying on debt. And again, by the end of next year, with interest rates rising, because the cost of the national debt which is right now, let's say 600 billion. That'll go up to at least 1.2 trillion by the end of next year, if not more. When that happens, better than 90% of the national of government spending will be Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and interest on the debt. More than 90% by the end of next year. If you throw in national defense, it'll exceed 100% of tax revenue. And obviously, if this continues, Eventually, we'll need 
all of our tax revenue just to pay the interest on the national debt. There won't be any money left over to do anything other than to pay interest to bondholders. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen. We're never going to get to the point where interest consumes 100% of tax revenue. We're not going to get anywhere close to that point because there has to be a crisis long before we get to that point to prevent it. Otherwise, that's exactly where we're going to be. Something has to happen to stop the spending. Because the one thing we know that's not going to happen is fiscal responsibility. Congress and the president are never going to vote to defuse this bomb. This bomb is going to explode. Right? The only thing we don't know is how long is the fuse. How much time do we have before the bomb explodes? And there's a very interesting thing about this particular bomb. And that is the longer it takes to blow up, the bigger the explosion is going to be. Right? That's why it actually would be better to have it blow up now rather than to have it blow up later. But again, from a politician's perspective, later is always better. Even if it's way worse, it's better. Because, you know, who knows how much later is going to be. A lot of these guys are like, who cares? I may not be in office when the bomb blows up. So it's somebody else's problem. In fact, I may not even be alive. You know, I may be dead uh, when this whole thing blows up. So who cares, right? What happens after I'm dead, right? So that is the perspective, unfortunately, of the people who we have elected to lead this country. They don't give a damn about the country. They don't care what happens to it. Um, they just care about their own political careers. And you know that too, because they're, 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 they're saddling future generations with, with debt. I mean, do you care about your country? If you don't even care about your kids, your grandkids, if you're piling all this debt? And it's not like we're giving them a, an asset to go along with the debt. You see, if we were borrowing money to, to build infrastructure, let's say we're going to build a bridge that's really going to be valuable. It's going to make a transportation uh, more efficient and, and, and it's going to be good. But, you know, it's going to take a lot of resources to build a bridge, which our children and our great, great grandchildren are going to benefit from. OK, maybe we borrow some money and we give them the bill, but we also give them the bridge. Right. So they have to pay for the bridge that they get to use. But that's not what we're doing. We're borrowing money and just spending it. We're consuming it. We're buying stuff. We're giving our children and our grandchildren nothing, <laughs> just a bill for the party that we have. Now, I mean, how is that responsible? Now, of course, what is going to happen, right, is that the next generation, which is probably already here, right, the generation that's supposedly going to be the patsy to pay for this gigantic party, you know, is alive. They're here, right? <laughs> They're starting to vote but they are not going to pay the bills, right? A, they're not even gonna work, right? A lot of them don't have jobs, you know, and they don't even believe in capitalism anymore. They're a bunch of socialists. But the ones who do believe in capitalism and who are entrepreneurial and who theoretically could pay some of the taxes, they'll just leave. They'll just go to another country, you know, where they're not gonna have to pay confiscatory taxes to cover the debts that were built up uh, by previous generations. You know, that's one of the reasons when other thing when I when I ran for U.S. Senate in uh, in 2010, 
not only did I talk about why I wanted to make sure we didn't raise the death ceiling, and, and I wanted to deal with the problem instead of making the problem bigger and, and postponing it. But a lot of people were asking me about my support uh, for the wall. You know, this is long before Trump, you know, got elected promising to build a wall. Walls were pretty popular at that time in, in the Republican Party. And I, and I was running, you know, in, a, in the Republican primary. And so a lot of the Republican primary voters would ask, you know, what's your opinion on building a wall, you know, on the southern border to keep the Mexicans out? And my main opposition to building that wall, and I had a few reasons that I didn't want to build it, but my main opposition was that if we eventually did build a real wall that was capable of keeping the Mexicans out, it was also capable of keeping the Americans in. And that's what I was afraid of, that that wall would eventually not be used to keep the Mexicans out, but to keep the Americans in. Because what might happen, if you build up enough debt and saddle future generations with the bill, and the future generations don't want to pay the bill, and they want to leave, well, how do you force them to stay, right? You make it illegal for them to leave, right? You have a wall so they can't escape, and you turn the country into a gigantic prison. That's what I was afraid of, because when countries get very oppressive, people try to escape. I mean, that's why everybody always tried to escape these communist countries, right? I mean, nobody ever tried to escape from Florida to Cuba. No, it's the other way around. It's the Cubans that were risking their lives to get on a boat to come to Miami because they wanted to get the hell out of Fidel Castro's workers' paradise. You know, it's when the governments come in, right, and socialists take over, that's when you have to make it illegal, like in, 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 in the Berlin Wall, right? The Berlin Wall wasn't there to keep the West Germans out of East Germany. No West German in their right mind wanted to go into East Germany. No, it was the East Germans, right? The, the guns were pointed at East Germany. They weren't pointed at West Germany, right? I mean, it was, they were, the communists needed to keep their people in. Like, it's, this is a workers' paradise, yet all the workers want to get the hell out because it's no paradise, right, until, until you have to live with it, right? Socialism is great until you actually have to live with it, right? It sounds good to a lot of people who are not very educated, uh, but once they experience it, they want to get the hell out. So we have a generation that is not going to pay these bills, either because they're too incompetent to generate the income to pay the taxes, or they're so competent, they're going to get the hell out. And so what's ultimately going to happen is a currency crisis. So it's not the grandchildren who are going to pay the costs it's the current generation. It's my generation. It's the baby boom, right? I am one of the younger baby boomers born in 1963, right? That's why I'm 60 years old now in 2023. But I, my generation, the baby boom, we are the bag holders of this thing, I believe, because we have a lot of wealth now and there's a lot of us who are expecting Social Security, Medicare. We ain't going to get it, right? I mean, some of us have already started getting it. I mean, technically, I'm still, what, five, seven years away from my first Social Security check, if I ever get one, right? And, and I guess I will get one. I just don't think it's going to have any value when, when, I, when I get it. But this current generation is going to pay the piper on this because we have done the irresponsible thing every single time, and that is raising the death ceiling. And you know, these guys, the Democrats are saying to the Republicans, 
Now is not the time to cut spending. Now is the time to raise the debt ceiling. Let's deal with the spending at a later date. We'll have another negotiation about spending cuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not going to go anywhere because it never goes anywhere. I've been hearing this crap my entire life about how we're going to cut spending in the future. When I was you know, running for office, I knew that the only way to ever cut spending was to refuse to raise that debt ceiling and force the government to do what every political fiber in their body tells them not to do. Again, they want to get reelected. That's it. That's the only problem that they want to solve is how do they get reelected. Everything else is secondary. And these guys know if we have to cut spending, and again, to actually do the responsible thing, we have to take a meat hook to spend, meat cleaver to spending. I think we got to get rid of two thirds, I mean, one third of our spending or one half of our spending to balance the books, right? Not even paying down the debt, just to stop running up more. If we actually wanted to pay our bills, we got a $32 trillion stack of unpaid bills, you know, that we have to stop adding to. And we have to uh, cut spending dramatically, or we have to raise taxes dramatically on the middle class. But again, either one of those is a no-go uh, for a politician. Yeah, we'll raise taxes on the super rich, but they won't even raise taxes on the rich because the rich give the money for their campaigns. So they're off limits too. Nobody's taxes get raised. No spending gets cut. In fact, even these Republicans, even the spending bills they oppose originally, you know, once these new programs are enacted, the guys that were against them won't take them away because that's the hardest thing to do. It's one thing to vote against giving somebody something that they don't have. It's a whole other thing to vote to take away something that they already do have because that's when voters really get mad. It's not about not giving them something they never had, but taking away something they already believed that they owned or they were entitled to. Forget that. So none of this is going to happen. The debt's going to keep on going up and the dollar is going to crash. We're going to have this currency crisis. Inflation is going to explode. And then the baby boom generation is going to get stuck with the bills that we thought we were passing on to our children and our grandchildren. Uh Uh-uh. We're going to have to deal with it. So we thought we were going to kick the can down the road and saddle our kids and our grandkids with our debt. Well, you know what? Joke's on us. We're going to have to pay it, which as far as I'm concerned, you know, is better, right? Let, let the generation that ran up the debt deal with the consequences, although, you know, there was a generation before us that also ran up a lot of debt and got away with it, right? They got out of Dodge by, by, by passing away, right? So they're not going to, they didn't live to see the collapse, but the baby boom is going to live to see the bust. Now, the question is, what follows economically? As I've said many times, that's the wild card, right? Because we're at a very dangerous fork on the road to serfdom. And we've been on that road for a long time. Will we actually veer away from it in the aftermath of this collapse? You know, potential hyperinflation. It didn't work out that well for the Germans. They had hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic, and that, that led to Adolf Hitler. So, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, it doesn't have to be Hitler, it, you know, because that's about as extreme. But it could be something that is moving in that direction. You know, uh, the National Socialism, the fascists were socialists. But, I mean, it, we could become more of a totalitarian society if capitalism gets the blame. And I would not be surprised the politicians will try to blame capitalism. And most of the voters are dumb enough to believe them. Uh, So it's going to be a a, a very dangerous uh, crossroad that we're going to hit 
uh, when it hits the fan and we have this collapse. Uh, I'm doing everything I can to educate the public, to try to get them to understand beforehand by warning about what's going to happen. So when everything does happen that I'm warning about, I've explained why it's going to happen, who the real culprits are, and the real solution being a return to free market capitalism and sound money and a complete rejection of, of socialism, uh, central planning, and central banking. That is what created this mess. In the meantime, protect yourself because this, this is inevitable, right? The crash is coming. All you could do is buckle up and make sure you got an airbag, you know, and that is a portfolio you know, of non-US dollar assets, foreign stocks, dividend paying stocks, gold, silver, you know, things that will survive and maintain their purchasing power in a dollar crash and, and runaway inflation, which is where we're headed. Anyway, that's it for uh, tonight's podcast. I uh, will be doing more podcasts uh, later in the week and uh, make sure and tune in live.